Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. It is great to be in the house of the Lord. Um, If you have a Bible, I trust you do this morning. We're going to continue our series in the book of Hebrews. You can begin to turn there. Hebrews chapter 2 is where we're going to land this morning. And uh, as we begin, let me just give a shout out to so many that are uh, in the room, but also those online. Thanks for tuning in. I know Jacob, Autumn watching uh, this morning. Thank you guys. Uh, praying for you and your family and uh, so many others that are tuning in. It's just, it's great to be able to have that connection. Great to see people back on campus first service that I hadn't seen for a while. And so um, it's just great to gather as believers and press into the Lord. And that's what we want to do this morning. Uh, Before we pray and begin, I just want to ask the question, have you ever struggled Okay, now I'm not talking like the man, it's a long line in Chick-fil-A struggle. I'm talking like the real hard stuff. Still there, right? Yeah, and, and I, believe, I believe many of us are this morning, and, and that's why I love this passage. I believe, and I just want to encourage you, I believe God's going to meet you in this moment. Whether you're here, whether you're watching with us online, I believe that God's going to meet you unique in your own place, your own hurt. Uh, We're all in this place with very unique needs, very different feelings. Some came in with a great sense of expectation. Some of you are really hurting this morning. Um, So wherever you are, I believe God's going to meet you. Uh, When we talk about suffering, when we talk about uh, struggles and difficulties, hardships, uh, I think about the moments that, that are a crisis of faith right? It's the stuff that, that just rocks your world. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you just begin to ask questions and you struggle. And, and I think that's a lot of what our world wrestles with, right? Uh, if God is good, why does he allow some of these kind of things? And so I would simply say, if you're in those moments or if you have experienced those moments, or I promise you, you will experience those moments uh, in this life, Uh, I I trust and pray that you'll take something from God's word that the Holy Spirit's going to teach you this morning very uniquely and prepare you and equip you uh, in your walk and your journey. So let's just invite him to meet us and teach us this morning. Can we do that? Father in heaven, as we gather in this place, uh, and for those that are getting a glimpse into the room this morning, uh, Father, I just ask you to do what only you can do, and that is to teach us. Lord, you you promised that the Holy Spirit is going to be our teacher, our instructor. And so I just ask you to have your way with each of us. Lord, at any single point of need for that person that's sitting in this room or accidentally tuned in online, whatever, Father, would you just uniquely meet each of us? We have hurt. We have past. We have difficulties. We are in situations right now. We have situations pending and situations coming. But God, we trust and know that you are the God of all. And so would you simply snuggle up beside each of us and just teach us, embrace us. God, hold close those that need to to hear from you so closely. And Father, scream deep into our hearts and our minds and, and teach us to press into you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2 is where we will be, but I need to set this up just a little bit to kind of get us um, 
ready for, for where we are because um, the, the people that are addressed here in the book of Hebrews are in the midst of suffering. They're in the midst of struggles and difficulties. And so welcome to the church, right? Um, we have this false idea somewhere and, you know, TV preachers say it and bad preachers say it, that when you come to know Jesus, you're never going to have any problems. And it's just a lie, right? Matter of fact, we're going to see in this text and we see in various places in scripture, we're guaranteed to have problems. Um, and so we just kind of need to understand that. So um, when we look at it, the, the, the readers of this letter are in the midst of struggle. They're, they're dealing with difficulties and hardship. As we move through this series over the next several months, uh, we're going to see more and we're going to learn more about who these people are. And we pick up a, a little glimpse. I just want to give you a little idea to, to understand where they are as we're pressing into chapter 2. In, in chapters 10, 12, 13, we begin to understand that they are being persecuted for their faith. I mean, like hard persecution. Uh, chapter 13, 7, and 9, we see that they're being seduced by teachers of false doctrine. Um, and they're in danger forgetting the true word of God that their leaders had given to them. Uh, chapter 5, just a couple of chapters from now, we're going to see that, that they were at a standstill. And the writer is challenging them not to just be at a standstill spiritually because they're in danger of going backwards. In other words, there's no stop and pause in the Christian life, right? We're always progressing. We're always moving forward or we're going to fall behind. Chapter 10, he again brings out the fact that some had forsaken regular worship together. That might be disappointment, it might be discouraging, it might be abandoning God, or it might be, as we learned last week, chapter two, they may have started to drift. And so what happens? They begin to neglect the gathering of worship together. They've stopped getting together with other believers for the purpose of challenge, encouragement, support, prayer, nurture, accountability. Chapter six, they were not making spiritual progress and so the writer's challenging them and encouraging them. And I think a lot of that stems back to the fact that we live in this, this broken, fallen world. And in the midst of our struggles, sometimes it's hard to press on, isn't it? Is it just me? Yep. <laughs> Life is hard. And sometimes just to press on is a difficult process. And so it was the author's purpose and intent simply to meet them in their struggles, to bring a word of encouragement, uh, to kind of nurture them in their walk with Christ, and, and more than anything, just to kind of bring a reminder of hope. And some of you this morning may just need a reminder of hope that what's going on today is not going to last forever. Even as followers of Jesus, we find this to be true, right? That, man, we come to know Christ and, and, and yet we still experience difficulties. And so I am sure that they were struggling with the kind of questions that I ask, that people ask today, um, the problems of unjust pain, unjust suffering, sickness, death. It's kind of like... The, the phrase, and, and I think it keeps a lot of people from even trusting in God or believing in God. I think it pushes people toward atheism or agnosticism when you hear phrases like, well, it's just not fair. Well, it's just, it's just not fair that that would happen to that person because that person is so good. 
Or, or the, the questions, if God is truly a loving God, how could he allow blank and just fill in the blank? And, and I've heard that from non-believers, people who've not trusted Christ. But listen, I'll be honest, I hear it from people who follow Jesus as well. That somehow this person being sick or this person dying or, or this struggle in their life, and they'll say, well, it's just not fair. And sometimes those questions are very real, aren't they? Because in our hearts and our minds, we're trying to reconcile God's plan and God's purpose. And so the writer is pressing into some of those questions. Uh, the, the great author C.S. Lewis, who wrestled with agnosticism and atheism and finally came to that place of trusting the Lord, he, he sums up the problem of pain in this way. He says, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy, therefore God lacks either goodness or power or both. See, in other words, when I put God in my human perspective, I expect God to, way, uh, to act the way I expect him to from a human perspective instead of understanding that God is apart from me. He is other. That's what holiness is. It's, it's his otherness. Another pastor and commentator just talking about the issue of pain and suffering said this. He said, is God unable to relieve suffering? Then he's impotent. Is he unwilling to relieve it? Then he's not good. Is he perhaps unaware of our suffering? Then he's ignorant. In any case, such a deficient God would not be worthy of worship. And I would say that's true. If it were true, that God is not worthy of worship, but that is not true of my God. Because he is fully aware and he's fully capable and powerful enough and so the problem of pain and suffering is a major challenge for many people in the church and outside the church. People outside the church who've not yet come to know Jesus wrestle even with the existence of God because they can't wrap their minds around these types of questions. And so the real problem with pain is in, in the results from really not knowing where we are in the story. God is unpacking and writing a redemption story, and we have to understand where we are in that story to really reconcile and understand what God is really doing, and that's a matter of perspective. If you have ever walked into a room, and like your friends and family are sitting there watching a movie, and you walk into the room right in the middle of the movie, and, and what do you start to do? You start annoying everybody else in the room by asking questions. Who's that guy? Who's that guy? Why are they chasing him? Right? Because you, you have no idea where you are in the story. And so when it's all done, you, you, when everyone else is gone, you go back and watch the beginning because now it makes sense because you understand that. Uh, or maybe you jumped into a series and you jumped in at season three or four and you go, wait, I don't understand how this, you know, chemistry professor is now selling drugs or something. You know, I mean, we don't really know. And so we got to back up to season one and, and thus has introduced to human nature binge watching, right? Because we have to know what is going on. How did this guy get here, right? 
And, and so we want to know. And so th there's that whole reality of, of understanding where we are in the story because it changes our perspective. When you understand what happened in that chemistry teacher's life, you begin to understand a little bit of what has taken him on his journey. When you understand that the, the world is about to blow up because of this bomb, you understand why Tom Cruise is on this mission, right, to save the world. Um, but all of a sudden, things begin to make sense. And I don't know about you, that's kind of the way I've lived my Christian life sometimes, trying to understand, God, where am I in your story? And what's going on? And what are you doing with this hurt? And what are you doing with this suffering? And what are you doing with this brokenness? And how are you taking all this stuff to make me more like you? Because God is rolling out a, a story. And we need to recognize where we are in God's story. And I believe Hebrews 2 gives us a little bit of that perspective. So we're going to walk through it. I'm not going to take time to read every verse that's here. Uh, but I'm going to summarize some things. And there's four things that I believe the writer helps us um, understand that begin to change our perspective of suffering and hurt in a broken, fallen world. And the first thing that I want you to see in this text is the tension in the not yet. If you're taking notes and you're filling in your small group study guide, you're going to go, I have no idea what that sentence means. It's okay. We're going to talk about it for a moment, right? The tension in the not yet. When we look at this passage of scripture, first I want you to know that last week when Pastor Scott was finishing chapter one, rolled into chapter two, those first four verses that he taught on last week, talking about spiritual drift, are a parenthetical warning. So in other words, he had a thought and he was teaching, right? Jesus is greater than the angels. And then he, he kind of inserted this little warning saying, hey, don't neglect such a great salvation. Don't drift, don't slip, don't fall away. Don't let it pass by. That's kind of what the word basically means. And so there was that little four, cent or four uh, verse warning, but his continued thought really picks up in, in verse five of chapter two. And so I want, what I want you to see is the tension in the not yet is understanding uh, the, the idea that there is still something yet to come. God has done an incredible work. It is a completed work, but we have not yet experienced all that God has in store. So I want you to listen to the language that the writer uses that is, that is somewhat um, futuristic. He's looking toward the future, knowing that what has already happened in the redemption story of Jesus, this section begins saying, hey, we know what has taken place, but we're not aware of all that has yet to take place. So in, in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, are they not all ministering spirits? Speaking of angels, because that was his continued thought sent out to serve for the sake of those, get this, who are to inherit salvation. Do you hear it? He's saying there's something that has yet to happen. And then in verse five, because that's really his continuing thought right there, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to, to come. It was not the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, right? Again, there's this future tense perspective of what I'm writing about and what I'm talking about partially has to do what has yet to come. And so then he moves on, then in verse 8, he says, now in putting everything in subjection to the world, um, or I'm sorry, in everything in subjection to him, speaking of Jesus, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. 
One Bible study technique that, that I encourage our small groups to use often is simply to read the passage over and over and look for words that are repeated or emphasized. And there's several words in this text, if you just read through it, that you will see either repeated or emphasized. Subjected or subjection is one of those words that you will see multiple times. Because it implies that something had happened in God's plan and had something has yet to happen. That's why he's saying we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That is in subjection to Christ. There's a, a forward perspective that the writer is trying to help us understand. It's a hope in what is yet to come without being lost in the burden of the here and now. Uh, he, he's helping them see the reality of what Pastor Scott has often referred to as the already but not yet. Anybody remember him using a phrase like that? Something has already happened, but we have not yet completely experienced it. God's redemption, his shed blood on the cross was sufficient to pay the price for my sin, but I have yet to fully experience all of God's perfection, which I won't until I get to, to heaven and stand in, gl in a glorified state in the presence of God for all eternity. So in the meantime, I'm struggling with my sin and I'm learning to grow in my sanctification to be more like Jesus. So I've experienced forgiveness, I've ex experienced sanctification and holiness in Christ, but I have not yet experienced all that God has in store for me. And so until the not yet comes, there's a tension in life that's full of difficulties, hardships, struggles, sorrows, hurt, brokenness, despair, defeat, death, the list can go on and on. We're in the middle of the story of God's full redeeming work. So, so let's just catch a snapshot for a moment because we're reminded here because the writer's really kind of pressing into uh, the dominion that God intended for man to have over creation. If you remember the story of creation, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, God created everything. It was perfect. It was awesome. He said, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. Hey, there's a man. He's alone. That's not good. So he created a helper, right? Woman to come alongside man. And he said, look, all this creation is yours. You are to have rule over it. You are to have dominion over it. You're to have dominion over, over the, the ground and the, the crops and the birds and the animals and the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky. Man was ruling over that and had dominion over that for two chapters of the Bible, and then he blew it. And I don't want to sound critical, it probably would have taken me less than one, right? So I don't want to be too hard on Adam and Eve, but in Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to the fall of man. And that dominion was lost. Everything that was in subjection to man, which was God's perfect plan, was now disrupted and turned upside down through one action of sin and rebellion against God. Genesis chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. We'll throw it up on the screen. But, but I love, and I want you to hear, I want you to hear what, what's taking place because this verse is going to remind you of another New Testament verse, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, where we hear about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, all having to do with sin. You're going to hear it in Genesis chapter 3. It simply says, so when the woman saw that the tree saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she, what? took 
of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate, which also implies that he took. He took something that was not right. He, he broke fellowship with God. And that word took, as simple as it may seem, introduced sin. And sin introduced separation, death, and fearful hiding from God. Every one of us are the seed of Adam. So guess what? We're born in sin. No one ever had to teach me to sin. As a dad, my three precious little sinners, I never had to teach them to sin. Never. Why, why is it so natural? Because we're born sinful. Because of this. So th there was a, a perfect plan that God had put in place. All dominion, subjection of, of, of everything on earth was to be under mankind. But Adam destroyed that. And so what, what we lost in Adam, we, rede we were redeemed through Jesus. And, and all of creation is under subjection to him, but we don't see it yet, right? Because he has not completely restored his creation. There will come a day that, that, that the glory and splendor of heaven will, will simply look like what it looked like in Genesis 1 and 2. But right now we're living in this not yet. And in that not yet, there's a tension and it's brought on by sin. Matter of fact, I love it. I sat with a, a guy named Dale. Dale was in his early 80s a number of years ago and, and he was so angry at God. And he looked at me and he said, so you're telling me that if someone doesn't give their life to Jesus, they're gonna go to hell. I said, I'm not saying it, Jesus said it. And he said, well, that just doesn't make sense. He's a reformed alcoholic. He's been through AA, he's got all these friends. He said, they're really great people. I said, I get it. And for whatever reason, God placed in my mind Genesis to Revelation. Because in Genesis, we're, we're introduced to the curse. Matter of fact, it brings it up in chapter three. You can read Genesis chapter three and it, it's cursed. Humankind, mankind, the earth was cursed and we live under that curse of sin. The last book of the, of the Old Testament and the, all the Old Covenant, it uses the word curse. And then comes Jesus. And I love this because this is the redemption story now beginning to unfold. And then as you continue to read the life and the story of Jesus who, who died on our behalf and reconciled us to God, one day, Revelation chapter 21, you can go and you can look at it, it says, no more curse. So between the curse of Genesis 3 and the no more curse of, of Revelation chapter 21, we are now living in the tension of the not yet. God loves us. He's redeemed us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. But it, we have not completely experienced all of God's redemp redemption of his creation. We will one day. But until that time, we live in the grief and the structure of the not yet and all of the tension and all of the suffering and all of the difficulty that it brings to us. That word took, when you think about it, I mean, if you just press into that, took, introduced sin. What did sin introduce to humankind? It, it, it introduced chaos. It introduced confusion. It, it introduced defeat. It introduced death, destruction uh, to, to humanity in every possible way. If you think about it, right? It destroyed everything and brought chaos intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. It, it just completely destroyed that process. 
So what is God doing? God is using us in love and grace to redeem his, his creation to himself. There was a pastor commentator named William Barclay. I don't agree with all of his stuff, but, but in his um, commentary on Hebrews, uh, he wrote a little contrast between what should have been and probably really should ought to be now if we were still in God's perfect plan and what actually is. And he simply said this, he said, men and women were meant to have dominion over everything, but they have not. They are creatures who are frustrated by their circumstances, defeated by their temptations and surrounded by their own weaknesses. The ones who should be free are bound and the ones who should be rulers are slaves. This is the despair of humanity. And yet when we come to know Jesus, he changes everything, right? But he doesn't take away all the sufferings. He doesn't take away all the hardships. He doesn't take away the consequences of sin. And so as we move forward, I think that was a, such a great perspective when Pastor Scott uh, looked at, at verses one through four. I think that's why we see that warning because God is saying, look, I am redeeming you. Dave, through the blood of Jesus Christ, I'm redeeming you to myself and I am bringing you back into trajectory with my perfect plan. And in the process, I'm redeeming, I'm sanctifying you, so don't drift. So stay, stay with me. I'm gonna grow you. You're gonna experience my greatest plan by staying close to me and not drifting. So I think it made perfect sense that the writer inserts that warning right there. So sin changed that trajectory of mankind. Uh, we drifted, we slipped away. So I wanna challenge us, don't allow sin and don't allow suffering to cause you to drift during this in-between, not yet period of time. Because I think that's what was happening with the, Hebrew, the, the, the readers in Hebrews. They're walking in fellowship with Jesus, but, but they're distracted through all the sufferings and all the sorrows. And, and he's saying, don't drift. Stay close, stay close to me. Stay close to the body. Maintain your trajectory. Because at the beginning of God's stories, humans were designed to exercise this dominion. But after chapter three and that fall, that original intent for man was suspended, right? It wasn't destroyed, it was suspended and we're subject to the suffering and effects of this cursed world. But even in the midst of this sin, we hear it a lot, we love this verse, we quote it a lot because we realize we have struggles, we realize we have sorrows. And so we love to jump to Romans 8, 28, don't we? We love it because even in the midst of our struggles and suffering, we see that God is working things together for our good. Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things, say it out loud, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He didn't say some things. He didn't say the good things. He said all things. I don't know about you. But at least for me, I can honestly say that as God has allowed me to go through some of the difficulties and hardships, I see him working into my life, transforming me and bringing me greater sanctification to be more like him than in any of the good things I've ever experienced. Hardships, sorrow, death, tragedy, disappointment. 
But God uses that stuff when we understand where we are in the process. So uh, we need to understand the tension of the not yet. But then it's interesting because when, when we watch those, those sitcoms and those, those, you know, series of various things, they always end an episode with what? Stay tuned for scenes from our next episode. They want to give you that glimpse into something else. Why? Because they're hooking you, right? Verses 9 and 10 in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews sort of pulls back the curtain just a little bit. He gives us a little bit of a glimpse into the future. So as he's encouraging these readers in their suffering, he's saying, look, I want to give you a little perspective. So the writer of Hebrews gives this little teaser trailer of a future in which Jesus Christ, who he refers to as the founder of our salvation, crowned with glory and honor, not ashamed to call us brothers, will restore all of humanity to what we lost in Adam. And so the second thing I want you to see in this passage is the triumph in the Savior. There's tension in the not yet, but we have triumph in the Savior. Verse 9 simply says, but we see him, Jesus, for a little while while he was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. If you have your Bible open, circle it, underline it, highlight it, do something just to make that name pop. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Man, what a glimpse of there is so much more yet to come. Jesus has done things on our behalf that, that we can't even begin to imagine. And so Jesus, right, I just have to emphasize this for a moment. It's all about Jesus. This entire book is all about Jesus. Our existence is all about Jesus. When you come here week after week after week, we're going to tell you about Jesus. And if we don't, I want to ask you to hold us accountable. If you ever walk out of here any particular day and we haven't talked about Jesus and how you can come to know Jesus, you need to, you need to hold us accountable. Because we are all about connecting people to Jesus for life change. Because in your hurt and in your struggles and your sorrows, I'm just telling you right now, I can't fix that. Nobody can fix that, but Jesus can. So what is our responsibility as believers? Our responsibility as believers is to walk through the journey with one another, to love one another, and point one another to Jesus, who's the only one who can fix our stuff. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about Jesus all the time. And we see it, Pastor Scott talked about this a little bit as we started the series, but the word better or greater appears 13 times throughout the course of this book. Um, and we saw already in chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus is greater than the angels. Uh, we'll see in chapter 7, Jesus brings a greater hope. In chapter 8, verse 6, we're going to see how Jesus is the mediator of a greater covenant established on even greater promises. But there's another word that is used actually 14 times in the original Greek language, and that is the word perfect. And we see it used here for the very first time. Uh, perfect. Um, he says Jesus is, is perfect. Perfect simply means a perfect standing before God. And, and this perfection could never be accomplished by any religious or moral act. 
It couldn't be uh, attributed to church membership or, or anything else, only through the blood of Jesus Christ, who is greater than our sin, who gave himself as one offering for the sin of all mankind to redeem what we lost in Adam. So later in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to come across this passage. For by a single offering, he was perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified. It is an ongoing work. It's not a one and done. We don't become perfect and just like Jesus, that moment we come to know Christ, but through the sanctification process, which is another word that's repeated in here. So as you're reading through, looking for words that are repeated or emphasized, you're gonna see subjection. You're gonna see sanctification. You're gonna see salvation. I want you to read through chapter two this week and simply look at all the personal pronouns attributed to Jesus in this one single passage because it's incredible, it's awesome, because he's saying this is all about Jesus. We have triumph in the person of Jesus Christ who is our savior. But let me just say that we're all at different places right now. So some of you may be in the room or accidentally came up online and, and you're kind of going, what is all this? Who is this person named Jesus? Maybe you're here trying to explore that. Maybe you're here because something's going on in your life and it really hurts. And maybe you're looking for answers. Maybe, maybe you're just struggling with life and you're trying to find those answers and go, what is, what is life all about? Maybe you've come to that place of saying, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? These are the struggles of humanity and I just want you to know that the answer is in a person named Jesus. We could take verses 9 and 10 and do a series. I'm not going to do that this morning. Somebody say amen. All right. Instead of pressing into all the credentials and why this is so significant that we can have triumph in the person of Jesus Christ, I'm going to cut my message. Is that okay? Because I'm going to take that part out and I'm going to offer you a resource. Uh, instead of teaching on a lot of this stuff, because we're going to get to a lot more through the book of Hebrews, but I want to offer you this great little book. We've offered it before. There's some out in the, in the foyer at the Next Steps table. There's some down here along the stage. If you want to know about the credentials of this person named Jesus, why is Jesus so significant? Why do we put such great credibility in the person of Jesus? This man who came and lived a sinless life, took on humanity in the person of Jesus Christ, but was God incarnate. Over a night or two, you can read this book, and I promise you, if you are searching, it will answer questions. If you're hurting, it's going to give you a greater foundation for your faith to press into Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm going to tell you, it's going to give you a firmer foundation for you to grow. And so I want to put one in the hand of every person here and online. We're going to throw up a number. You can simply text BOOK to that number, 919-444-8081. We'll try to get one in your hands as quick as we can. They'll be in the office if you want to stop through this week. But I encourage you to grab that, read it, and then please do me a favor. Pass it on to somebody and engage in a conversation because we are passionate about what? Connecting people to Jesus for life change. So grab one this morning. With that, I'll move on to my next point. Third, I want you to see the trials in our sanctification. Sanctification is used a couple of times in this chapter. 
Sanctification is simply the process by which we become more like Jesus. It is our ongoing salvation. Well, when we talk about salvation, I came to know Jesus once upon a time in my life, and at that moment, I was saved. That's a one and done. I I believe in the assurance of salvation that Jesus is not a liar. He will do exactly what he said he will do. And so when I invited him into my life, he came in and took up residence in my life. I never have to ask him to do that again. But at that moment, I didn't know a whole lot. So I am being saved. Every day of my life, I am being saved. In other words, I've trusted Christ. He's taken up residence in my life. And now I'm going through this sanctification process. I am being saved every day, learning to be more like Jesus Christ. So so my prayer every morning is something similar to Lord Jesus. I thank you that you've given me eternal life. I thank you for the blood of Jesus. I thank you that you've taken up residence in my life. But Lord, I also know I don't have the capacity in my sin to live a life that's honoring to you. So the best way I know how, I ask you to take control of my life today. Continue to make me more like you, right? I have the assurance of salvation, but I also know I'm a work in progress. And if you question that at all, just ask Leslie. And she will, she will tell you, oh, that, yeah, he's a work. So, right? But there's a, there's a sanctification in our trials. And when you read from 11 down through 17, and I really encourage you to do this, look at all the, the personal pronouns that are related to Jesus and what Jesus did on our behalf. Because through this passage, what we are promised is that we're going to have struggles. We're going to have problems. We're going to have hardships. We're going to have difficulties. But Jesus has experienced all those things already on our behalf so that he can make us more like him. Anybody been persecuted, criticized? Jesus did. Anybody arrested and falsely accused for your faith? Probably not in this room, but it's happening every day around the world. There are more people being martyred for the cause of Jesus Christ today than there was back when these guys were being persecuted. If you question that, go to a website called voiceofthemartyrs.com and just follow. I get emails from them every day just tracking, praying for believers around the world who are being persecuted. I've never been persecuted like that for my faith. I've never been arrested and falsely accused and tied to a post and beaten beyond human recognition to a bloody pulp like Jesus did. Do you think Jesus can equate and understand my sufferings and my trials and my struggles? Absolutely he can because he's been there, he's done that, yet he did it without sin. I can't go a moment without grumbling and complaining and yet Jesus did so much more for me with never ever crossing into sin and he did those things on my behalf. So there are trials in our sanctification and the writer reminds us of how Christ has suffered on our behalf so that through his salvation that I receive and his sanctifying work in my life, I can bring honor and glory to him. Why did Jesus experience the suffering, the persecution, the beating, the crucifixion, the death? He did it to bring honor and glory to Jesus, to to God the Father, and to bring us into right relationship. So that as I experience suffering, growing in sanctification, I begin to look more like Jesus. So I'm not going to take time to read the the verses 11 to 17. I did, but I just don't want to take that time right now. But read through it and just just look at what he's saying. 
Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and, and deliver all of those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, that's us. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus did all of that for me so that as I go through the trials and the sufferings and the difficulties, that can be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. I can also understand that my Savior has been there. He's fully aware of the hurt. He's fully aware of the sorrow, the suffering that I may experience because he knows. And, and in knowing that, let me, let me just encourage you this morning, he knows your questions, he knows your hurt, he knows your questions, he knows your doubts, and he is sitting there waiting for you to bring them to him. See, when we begin to doubt, and we begin to question, and we begin to ask God hard stuff, we kind of run away as if God's afraid of that. He's not. You may have some serious questions for God today. God, how in the world could you? I, I encourage you to go to him. Go spend some time with him and ask him and listen. Press into his word. I'm telling you, he's going to teach you things. You will see things because he says, I, I know exactly where you are. I know your doubts. I know your hurts. I know your struggles. I've been there. I can understand. He identifies with our struggle. So the fourth thing, and I'll close here, is that we need to trust the process. Trust in the process. Uh, I love verse 18. He simply says, uh, he, he's just talked about how God has, has become the propitiation, the reconciliation for our sins. And, and then he says, for because he himself has suffered, when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And the word tempted there is, is actually, uh, the root of that word is actually a trial, a struggle. Um, it's, a, it's a trying situation to be put to the test. So as we're being sanctified, as we're going through the hurts, the struggles, the difficulties of life, he's simply saying, hey, look, when you go through that, it's, he, he's, he's able to help because he's been there. And you have to trust the process. Uh, when you look at the root of that word, it's kind of cool because the root of, of the word trial is, is actually to come out on the other side. So he's saying, look, well, when you're tempted, there's life on the other side. Well, when you go through that hardship, that trial, that suffering, when you're put to the test, the greater life is on the other side. We're going to persevere through that. We're going to grow in sanctification to get through that so that on the other side, we become more like Christ. So that on the other side, Jesus is magnified and glorified. So that on the other side of that, people look at us and say, how in the world did you get through that? And we go, it's with Jesus. I don't know about you, but in my life, there's some things I've discovered you don't get over. There's some hurts in life, there's some difficulties in life that we never get over, but we get through with Jesus and we come out the other side. We're on the other side of that struggle. We're on the other side of that hardship. We're on the other side of that difficulty with Jesus. 
And we begin to look around and, and we begin to see that other people have come to know Christ through the process. I look at my own life and realize I, I begin to look a little bit more like Jesus because of that hardship and because of that struggle. We don't get over those things, but we get through those things with Jesus Christ because he's conforming us to his image. We can triumph in the Savior and we can trust in the process that God is doing things to conform us to his image and to redeem this lost and dying world to himself. Bow your heads in an attitude of prayer this morning. And all through this room and all online, I just want to invite you to worship the Lord this morning. In me, Christ, be magnified. Let your name arise in me through my sorrows, through my hardships, through the difficulties. God, in me, be magnified. Let your name arise through all the hardships. God, let me be faithful to praise you. Lord, when I'm down and I'm struggling, let me magnify you. Let people see you in me. God, conform me to your image wherever you are this morning, whatever the situation, I encourage you to turn to him and not from him. The altar's open. If you need to come and pray, if you need to come and talk to someone, please don't leave this room without just having a conversation with somebody. Maybe online you can text us and text pray to that number. We'd love to have a conversation with you. Father, just have your way with us. Above all, God, through our circumstances in life, would you be magnified and glorified? In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.